Okay, praise the Lord. Hope everybody had a restful holiday. Wonderful time traveling, spending time with family, eating a lot of good food. Well, it's all over now, <laughs> so let's get to work. Okay, Acts 1, 1 through 11. If you're joining us in person, you're going to see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, welcome. It's going to be on your screen at home, Acts 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own, own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory and we thank you so much, Lord, for your faithfulness over this entire past year. And thank you, Father God, for this brand new year and all that you want to do, all that you have in store for us. So, Lord God, we thank you, Father. We don't want to take any day, let alone any new year, for granted, but it belongs to you. And we thank you so much, Father, for this time now to worship you. Thank you for that time, that sweet time of singing, but now help us now to worship you as we hear and internalize and chew and eat your word. We thank you, Father God. Be with everyone here. Be with those who might still, Father God, wrapping up their holiday um, away, but Lord God, we want to be with you today. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, praise the Lord. Today is a very special day because not only is it the church's anniversary, but at the beginning of the new year, I always announce the new focus for the year. So you know this if you've been coming to our church uh, in the past. But each year, as the elders and I discuss and seek God together, what God would have us focus on and rally our church around, God always makes it clear. Without fail, something always begins to come upon our hearts, and as we discuss and pray, it just becomes clear. So for example, back in 2022, as we were coming out of COVID lockdowns, our focus was clearly to be the church. So that was the focus for that entire year. How are we going to be the church once again after this terrible season of not meeting regularly, being out in the parking lot, doing online-only services? We were called to be the church. And then last year in 2023, as ministries were now finally back in full swing and we were reconnecting with God and with one another, God made it very clear. Our focus was to be a disciple, to be disciples. So that was our theme for last year, disciple, as in be a disciple and also make disciples. And by the way, none of these focuses end just because the year ended, but these are aspects of the Christian life that keep going on. Amen. So we just continue to do all these things. But these focuses are simply just rallying points for the church, something that we highlight every single year. Uh, we give attention to these things more than other things, but that's all it really is. Well, 
Now that we're at the beginning of a brand new year, it is now 2024, we have a brand new focus. And this also became clear as I personally sought the Lord, as I brought it up with the elders, as we discussed and prayed, we all agreed this is the year of witness. Amen? So the year of witness, to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And I'm truly excited to see what God's going to do as our church intentionally focuses on being witnesses of Christ to the people God has placed in our lives, the network of relationships sovereignly in our lives is called our oikos. I'm talking about your family, your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, etc. But as God calls us to reach out to them intentionally, I'm excited to see what God is going to do. And this, by the way, is also the theme of the retreat that's coming up in February. Ryan mentioned it, but it's to engage our oikos. So I strongly encourage you, sign up and come out if you haven't done already. But this is going to be the focus for this entire year, to be a witness. And throughout the year, we also hope to have different trainings on evangelism, have different opportunities to invite your oikos to church. And finally, along with this new focus, we're also going to be studying a brand new book together, perhaps for the entire year. But I'm excited to kick off a brand new sermon series today in the book of Acts. Amen? So we're going to be studying the book of Acts together. And we may be in this book for a very long time. I'm literally talking about the entire year. <laughs> so don't be like coming back later in the year going, you're still in Acts? It's like, yeah, I told you. It might be the entire year. We might occasionally take breaks from the book of Acts to talk about other things. We don't only talk about one thing all year. But we will be in Acts for quite some time. So buckle down, get your coffee, grab your bookmark, put it right into your Bible at the beginning of Acts in the New Testament, because we're going to be there. So the book of Acts, okay, we're going to kick this off today. We're going to start looking at what this book is all about. We're going to start looking at the first paragraph, kicking off this book. And just to warn you, I want to go a little bit more in depth today. I want to look at just kind of the ins and outs of what this book is really about. And I just want to encourage you guys, if you're not used to that type of preaching or even that kind of ministry where you really just kind of dig into what the Word says, I want to encourage you, the Word of God has power. You know, this past week, I was listening to some different testimonies online. I do that from time to time. And I came across this one testimony of a guy named Johnny Chang. I don't know if you guys have ever seen him. He's a hardcore ex-game member, you could tell, because he's just tatted up all the way up to his chin, all, all over. But God met him powerfully. I mean, he was in prison for 10 plus years, but his mom had become a devout Christian, was praying, and then after he came out, God met him. And you know how God met him and changed his life? Through the word of God. And he says it. And now he's a minister, he's a chaplain to the prisons, and he is just a walking Bible. He is just quoting scripture all the time. It's just amazing. I was just blown away hearing his testimony. But all of that happened because of the power of the word of God. So more than anything, this is why we want to dig into the word and see what the word has to say, amen? It has the power to transform your life, our lives as well. So the book of Acts, okay, we're going to be starting this study today, but it starts with these words in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I. Now before anything else, we need to identify who is the I that is spoken of here. Okay, who is writing this book? Well, if you know anything about the book of Acts, then you probably know that it was Luke. But Luke was the author of this book. And knowing who wrote the book of Acts will help us to begin to understand the book itself. So it's important to know who Luke is. 
So the author of Acts was Luke, who was a companion of Paul, and he was a Gentile. So Luke was not a Jew, but he was an early convert to Christianity who knew and understood the customs of Jews. So you see that early on in the beginning part of Acts, but he talks a lot about the Jews in Jerusalem and a lot of their customs, and he's very familiar with all of it. But he was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. Luke was also a physician. He was a doctor, a medical doctor. Some say he might have served as Paul's personal physician. So that's interesting. And as a physician, Luke apparently used medical terms every now and then throughout the book of Acts. So occasionally, you might even see terms that are medical terms. Now, some Bible scholars argue this point, but for all of you who are in medicine, and there's a a number of you here, that might be interesting to know that. So kind of pay attention as we go through Acts. There might be some medical terms that Luke uses. As a physician, Luke was also well-educated, and he had traveled very widely. So Luke wasn't like John or Peter, who lived their entire lives pretty much in Galilee. But he was very cosmopolitan. You know that because his Greek is very sophisticated, arguably the best Greek in the New Testament. He was very educated. People have also pointed out that Luke is also the only writer of the Gospels that calls the Sea of Galilee a lake. So five times in the Gospel of Luke, he calls the Sea of Galilee just a lake. And the reason why is because Luke had seen a real sea. He's been to the Mediterranean Sea. So then when he saw the Sea of Galilee, he's like, oh, this is just a lake. (laughs) He just calls it a lake. So this is Luke. Luke was also a very prolific writer. He wrote a lot. He said in verse 1, in the first book. This means he wrote another book, right? (laughs) Called Acts. So there's a first book, then this is the second book. Acts is the second book. Most people pretty universally all agree the first book is his gospel, the gospel of Luke. So he wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as a two-volume set. So there's a first book, his gospel, the second book is Acts, and they really go together. They really go together. And these books are long. I mean, he is a prolific writer. But combined, these two books make up one-fourth of the New Testament in terms of sheer number of pages. I mean, that's incredible, a Gentile, right? He's not even a Jew, and yet he wrote about a fourth of the New Testament in terms of number of pages. And he really wrote these books as a set, and they're meant to be read together as part one and part two. This is why a lot of people, they refer to the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as just Luke-Acts. They just call it one thing. It's just Luke-Acts. And if you're actually on the Bible reading plan with us this year that Ryan mentioned, you're going to actually read through Luke while we're studying Acts. So that's kind of cool. But you're going to get a chance to see both side by side. So Luke was a prolific writer, wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament, He was also a very careful historian. If you go back to verses 1 and 2, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. So here Luke mentions what he wrote in his first book. He wrote all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. So in Luke's mind, Jesus' entire ministry is basically from his birth to when he ascended up to heaven. And his entire first book, the Gospel of Luke, covered that. But how did he write about everything Jesus began to do and teach? In what way did he write all this stuff? 
Well, if you go to the very opening of the Gospel of Luke, so I want you guys to see the, the opening of Luke because you're going to see the parallels in the opening of Acts. But in the opening of Luke, he tells us how he wrote his first book. Okay, look at Luke 1, 2 through 3. I think it'll be on the screen. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely. Another translation says, having investigated everything closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So that's how Luke wrote his first book. But his goal was to write down everything about Jesus' life and ministry in an orderly account from beginning to end. Based on eyewitnesses, he interviewed a bunch of people, apostles, Mary, people that actually knew Jesus, and based on everything, he investigated himself. He went and looked around and searched it all out. And based on all of it, he wrote this orderly account. So that was his first book. And if you were to read the Gospel of Luke, you would know that he took pains to get all the information correct. Because there is tons of detail, a lot of historical facts in both of his books. So he did that, did that in both Gospel of Luke and in Acts. And in particular, when you go through the book of Acts, as we go through, pay attention to all the different references Luke makes to specific locations, geographies, government authorities. He's naming people left and right, talking about different customs, and he talks about it all as if he's very familiar with it. And this is why both Christians and non-Christian scholars alike consider Luke one of the best ancient historians. I mean, you know, set aside the fact that he's a gospel writer, just, he's just a great historian. And so the book of Acts and Luke, his gospel, has served as a faithful guide to archaeologists for centuries. So Luke was a great historian. And the book of Acts is rooted firmly in history. Okay, this was not made up. This is not some myth, some fictional story, but it is firmly rooted in history. This was historical. But Acts is more than just history, amen? Because Luke was a great historian, but he was also more than that. He was an evangelist. So in both intros to Luke's gospel and Acts, Luke mentions somebody. Okay, who do you talk about? Theophilus. Okay, he was writing these books for a person named Theophilus. Theophilus could have been a pseudonym. It could have been a fake nickname, or it could have been an actual name, but it means lover of God. Okay, this person who was a lover of God. He was most likely an early convert to Christianity as well. He could have been the patron who funded Luke's writings, who funded Luke uh, producing these books. But Luke wrote his gospel in Acts so that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught, Luke 1.4. So this is why Luke wrote these books. So that somebody named Theophilus, along with other recent converts, and even people who are kind of seeking out Christianity, would know with certainty, everything that happened, everything that was taught. So what does this mean? Luke's an evangelist. He cared deeply about passing on the beliefs of the early Christians. He really wanted people to know the gospel and to build people up in the faith in the gospel. And so this was true for his first book and also for the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is not just a fast-paced historical book, but it's also a theological book. It's a work of theology. And this is why in the book of Acts, and you're going to see it as we go through it, you're going to see a lot of full-length sermons. 
Okay, huge chunks of sermons are recorded and huge chunks of testimonies as well, especially Paul's testimony. You see it repeatedly in the book of Acts. And these sermons and testimonies, they're filled, they're chock full of theology and beliefs of the early church. So there's a lot of theology that Luke is passing on. Why? Because he's an evangelist. He wanted people to understand what these beliefs were and to know the gospel so that they would have faith in the gospel. He wanted them to know the free salvation that Jesus offered. So he was an evangelist, especially to the Romans. He cared a lot about reaching the Romans. Maybe Theophilus was a Roman convert. But Luke took a lot of pains, especially in the book of Acts, to present Christianity in a very favorable light to the Romans. Yes, he was very accurate. He wasn't making things up. But it was also in a very favorable light for a Roman audience. So you'll see that as we go through it. So Luke was by and large an evangelist. And then finally, one more thing. Luke was also a churchman. Okay, he was somebody who cared a lot about the church and the unity of the church, especially between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So in the book of Acts, Luke actually spends a lot of time, a good amount of time on this. But he's careful to show how salvation belongs to the Jews. It came from them, but it's not just for the Jews. It's for all peoples of all nations, amen? So Luke cares a lot about showing this and how the salvation from the Jews really is the same salvation for all the Gentiles. We're all united in Christ. We all belong to the same church, the same Savior, the same Lord. It's all one and the same. So in the book of Acts, Luke highlights the struggles that the early church went through to preserve this unity. It almost ripped them apart. The Jews and the Gentiles didn't get along in the beginning. But Luke takes a lot of pains to show, no, we all belong to the same church, the same Lord. And Luke himself was a Gentile, right? I mentioned that. So he probably had a lot of concern about this, right? This was very significant to him, that, that we are all united. So there's a lot more we can talk about Luke, say about Luke, but as you can see, by just looking at who wrote this book, you can already see a lot about what the book is going to talk about, right? You can see a lot about what the book is going to be about. But the book of Acts is a historical, theological narrative. It is a story, but it is historical. It is theological. And it describes in detail the beginnings of the church and the worldwide Christian movement which we are all a part of. And all throughout the narrative, the gospel message, based on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it comes through loud and clear. Right? Again, it's not just a historical book, but it is a theological book, and the gospel is pulsating throughout the whole book. You'll see it all throughout. But it comes through loud and clear, and the whole time Luke is writing in a way to invite people, believe, right? Repent and believe in the gospel. Come to faith in Christ. That is the message of the book of Acts. Amen? So you're going to see that. It's very clear. We're going to see how the early church started, the birth of the church, the launch of the worldwide Christian movement, and all throughout how God is inviting people to faith in Christ in the gospel. That is the message of Acts. But the book of Acts is more than that, though. Okay, so one more thing. It not only invites people to believe, but it takes one step further. And you know what Acts does? It calls people to become witnesses. Clearly, this is another purpose for why Luke wrote this book. It's so that you would not only believe in the gospel, but that it would so transform you, you have this brand new purpose to your life. 
No matter what I'm doing, I could be a doctor, a businessman, a teacher, a stay-at-home mom, doesn't matter, stay-at-home dad, we are called to be witnesses. And so Luke is wanting us to be changed in that way. He's calling people to become witnesses of everything that we have heard and seen Christ do, both in scripture and in our lives and other people's lives. Okay, be a witness. Begin to share it. So the book of Acts is very unique in that it's the only book in the Bible where we're actually a part of the story. We are. See, no other book in the Bible, we can say, oh yeah, I actually, um, I'm a part of that story. I mean, symbolically, there's connections and it all relates to our lives today, of course. But the book of Acts is the only book in the Bible where we literally are in this story. We are in the story of the book of Acts. See, a lot of people point out, but the book of Acts doesn't have a proper ending. There's no official the end to the book of Acts. But when you get to the very last chapter, the very end of the last chapter, it just ends with Paul in prison. He's sharing the gospel and waiting to see the emperor, and then, and then it just kind of ends. And the reason why Acts doesn't have a proper ending, why we don't have the end to the story, is because the story of Acts continues today. I believe that's how God wrote this book. But the worldwide spread of the gospel through Jesus' church is still continuing today. And we're all literally a part of it. And so a lot of people have pointed out we are now the next chapter in the book of Acts. Have you, have you guys heard of that ministry, Acts 29? It's a cool name, right? A little edgy. But I think it's a good name because Acts 29 is not in the Bible. Acts ends with chapter 28. Then who's Acts 29? We are. We're Acts 29. We are the unwritten chapter, the next chapter in the book of Acts. So this literally is our story. Acts is probably the only book in the Bible where we can say, I literally am a part of the story. So no matter what your occupation in life, whatever career you have, whether you're single or married, whether you have kids or no kids, we are all living in Acts chapter 29, the next chapter in the book of Acts. Okay, you are a part of the worldwide Christian movement that will one day climax with Jesus' return and the end of this present age. We are all a part of that. Okay, you are a part of the greatest movement this world has ever seen with the only cure for this broken world, which is the gospel. Okay, you are a part of all of that. So again, brothers and sisters, this isn't just like, oh, I go to church and I try to be a good person. That is not Christianity. You are part of a worldwide movement that offers the only hope for this broken world. It is the gospel. So the book of Acts is not only an invitation to believe, not only to have certainty in Christ, it's also a call to be a witness. Is that clear? God is calling us to be his witnesses. And so the opening paragraph of Acts chapter 1 makes this so clear. So now we're going to look at the remaining verses, the opening paragraph. But in these opening verses, Jesus was teaching and preparing his witnesses. Okay, he's not just kind of encouraging his disciples before he says bye-bye. But he's actually preparing witnesses who would go into the world with the gospel of eternal life. Jesus is getting his witnesses ready. So Jesus never expected his followers to just become witnesses all on their own. Okay, I did my work. It's finished. Bye-bye. Right? Go, go share it with people. He didn't expect them to just do it on their own. With nothing but a Bible, with a bunch of butterflies in your stomach. Right? That's not how we go out into the world as witnesses. You know, uh, a few years ago, my son really got into this video game. Some of you guys know it too, but it's called Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. 
pretty cool game, right? One game of the, game of the year, I think. <laughs> but when my son first started playing the game, I'm using a more modern example, okay? I don't talk about video games usually. <laughs> but when he first started playing this game, the main character, Link, he shows up in the game in nothing but his underwear holding a stick. That's literally how you start your game. And then you have to build it up over time, right? You need to get armor and weapons and all this stuff. But if you wanted to, at the very beginning of this game, you could go fight the final boss. You could go fight Ganondorf with just your underwear and holding a stick. You could literally do that and then get your butt kicked, right? And I think a lot of Christians see themselves exactly like that. Oh my gosh, I gotta be a witness this year? This is the year of witness? Okay, I'm like literally in my underwear holding a stick and I'm gonna go fight Ganondorf, right? It's like, how am I gonna do this? I'm not gonna do it. I'm just gonna come to church and pretend like I'm not doing it, right? Or pretend like I'm doing it. But it's almost as if we have nothing and God just expects us to go out. And that is not the way, when you read the opening of Acts, that is not the way Jesus sent his followers out as witnesses. But he prepared them. There are specific things that he did. So just to kind of kick off this series, I want to mention four things that he did. They're all in this opening paragraph. But four ways that he began to prepare his followers to now become witnesses, powerful world-changing witnesses for him. And I want to give John Stott credit in breaking this down. He really helped me to understand this very clearly as I was reading uh, some of his works on the book of Acts. But four ways, he actually had more ways, but I'm just going to mention four. Four ways that Jesus really prepared them. Okay, first, Jesus chose them. He chose them. Look at verse two. It says, Jesus had given commands. Okay, this is after he died, rose again, right? He gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Jesus, before anything else, chose them. That was the very first step in turning them into his powerful witnesses. So from the very beginning of creation, God has always done this. He has sovereignly decided to work through individuals, although God doesn't have to. He is all-powerful. He doesn't need us, but he sovereignly has decided, I will always work through individuals when I accomplish anything on the earth. So all through the Bible, whenever God wanted something done on the earth, what did he do? It's the same thing every single time. He would choose a man or a woman, then revealed himself to that man or woman, then he equipped them, then he anointed them, and then he sent them out. That is the pattern every single time. That happened with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the fathers of the faith. That happened with every prophet, King David, Ruth, Mary. But God always chose individuals for his work. And then when Jesus finally came here on this earth, what did he do? He just kept doing the same thing, just like God the Father. He chose individuals for his redemptive work. So Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles. Later, he chose other men and women to be his witnesses in the early church. He chose Matthias to replace Judas, which we're going to hear about next week, but that's in the very next passage in Acts. Later, he chose Paul to be his apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, God told Ananias, another believer, to go pray for Paul because Paul just got converted. He was still blind. Go pray for Paul. Open his eyes. And then he said to Ananias, go pray for him. Why? Because he is my chosen instrument. Do you see that? God is always choosing people. He just doesn't go boop. Things are done on the earth. He will always work through individuals whom he has chosen. In fact, the entire book of Acts can be divided up by people God chose to work through. You can actually structure the whole book of Acts like that. So for example, God worked through Peter and John in chapters 1 through 8. God worked through Peter by himself in chapters 10 through 12. 
God worked through James's leadership in chapter 15, and then God worked through Paul in chapters 9 and then 13 through 20, all the way to the end. But these are all people God chose, and then he just worked through them. The whole book of Acts is just structured like that. And now, in Acts chapter 29, again, that's us, right? In the ongoing chapter that's being written still today by God, who has God chosen? Who has God chosen today, brothers and sisters? You, me, amen? God has chosen the believers today. You know, earlier we saw how the Gospel of Luke talked about what Jesus began to do and teach, right? Well, then what does that imply about his second book? If the first book is what Jesus began to do and teach, what's his second book about? Okay, what's the implication? Well, the book of Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and preach, right? That's the implication. This is what he's continuing to do. But how is Jesus continuing to do things in the book of Acts when he left? At the very beginning of the book, he ascended to heaven. Well, we know it's through his church, the people he has chosen. Okay, that's how Jesus continues to do everything he began to do in the gospel. Now he's continuing to do it. Why? Because he's literally doing it through us. See, the people whom he chooses to become his followers. And by the way, if you just repent and believe in Jesus, you're chosen. You don't have to wait around going, oh, choose me. Just believe in Jesus. He's chosen you. But for people whom he has chosen, he has kind of like the symbiotic relationship. It's like this special relationship, like no other relationship, where he is in us, we are in him, and he is literally now working through us. I know, we've heard this before, but it, but it blows your mind when you think about it. He is literally working through you. He is reaching your family and friends and coworkers through you. So when you kind of go, um, can I talk to you about something? And you start sharing the gospel with a family member, Jesus is literally in you and he's doing it through you. It's that kind of a symbiotic relationship. He's literally in you doing those things through you. Why? Because he's chosen you to do it. So the next time you're faced with like sharing the gospel to a, let's say a neighbor, a coworker, maybe a family member, would that make a difference to know that God has chosen you to be his witness? And because he's chosen you, he is literally doing it through you. I mean, would that even make a difference in the way you would approach it? Maybe the courage you would have, right? The boldness. I hope so, right? Would that make a difference? That you have literally been chosen by God to continue what the book of Acts is talking about. This worldwide Christian movement moving forward, one person at a time. God has chosen you for that. So you are chosen to be his witness. If you know that, then you know that you are not on your own. You know, a lot of times when people come to me and they ask me, you know, Roy, how do you, uh, how do you share the gospel with people? I always say this without fail. I always say, well, one of the first things I learned is evangelism is not about you making something happen. You don't have to be like, oh my gosh, okay, 2024, a year of witness, right? I gotta make something happen. That is so wrong. That is, not, that is not evangelism at all. But it's simply paying attention to what God is already doing in your family, in your coworkers, your neighbors, and then just joining him. Isn't that what Jesus said? He's like, I don't do anything on my own. I just watch what the Father is doing and I join him. That is exactly the way we're called to be a witness. You just join what God is already doing. You just look, pay attention. Again, why? It all goes back to this fact of him, being, him choosing you. You are chosen to be his witness. He is working through you. 
And so this is the very first thing that we must understand if you're gonna become a powerful witness. Okay, he has chosen you. Okay, there's uh, three more. So the second and third ways he prepared them, I'm gonna mention the second and third together. But next, Jesus gave them proof of the gospel. Okay, this is the second way he prepared them. He gave them proof of the gospel. Look at verse three. Okay, to them, the disciples, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So that's number two. He gave them many proofs of the gospel. Number three, I'm gonna mention them together. He promised them the spirit. Look at verses four through five. And while staying with them, he ordered them, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So clearly, Jesus spent time with them after he rose from the dead. He spent 40 days before he ascended to heaven. And why did he spend all that time with them? To teach them to possess two critical powers for witness. He wanted to pass on these two very, very critical powers to be a witness for him. Okay, here they are, conviction in the gospel and baptism in the spirit. And if you're gonna be witnesses this year, you must have these two powers. I call them powers because that's how the Bible talks about them. There are powers that you must have. Okay, here's another way to say it. In order to be an effective witness for Christ, you need to have both objective truth and the subjective power of the spirit. You need both. And any church that is going to reach people for Christ will have both. See, if you only have objective truth but no subjective power, you're going to dry up. People call this dead orthodoxy. You're just going to dry up. You just know a lot of things, right? It's head knowledge. But if you have subjective power but no objective truth, you're going to blow up. Right? You're just going to be like, whoa! You're just out there doing your own thing. And people call this heterodoxy. Another word is heresy, right? So you're going to blow up. But if you have both, then now you're going to raise up a mighty witness for Christ. This is why clearly, right at the beginning of Acts, as he's about to leave, he's like, you need these two powers. He gave them many proofs of his death, his suffering, and resurrection. He had the core of the gospel, and then he promised them the baptism of the Spirit. He listened to theologian John Mackey, but he said, first the enlightened mind, then the burning heart. First a revival of theological insights, and then the revival we need. See, they always go together. It's not just, oh, I, I just, I'm just about the Bible. I just studied the Bible. I don't know about the Spirit. I don't, I don't know about prayer. No. Or you shouldn't be like, oh, yeah, I'm just all about, you know, this experiential, like, connection with God through the Spirit. No, you need both. You need both. And then there's a mighty witness. So let me briefly look at these. But first, conviction in the gospel. Look at Acts 2.3. It says, to them, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. So it's amazing that after his death on the cross and after his resurrection, Jesus still felt the need to spend 40 days with his disciples. Okay, just seeing him resurrect wasn't enough. He needed 40 days with them. And what did Jesus do during those 40 days? Well, it says he showed them convincing proofs of his resurrection he taught them about the kingdom of God. So this is what he did. So what does that mean? Well, it means before they could become effective witnesses, they had to be taught and convinced without a doubt about the gospel of the kingdom. I believe that's what he's talking about. 
it wasn't like all these like different things he was teaching them. Oh, this is how you do church and this is what the kingdom is. Here's also the gospel. No, it was just all about one thing. He was teaching them and making them anchored and convinced about the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. And why? Because that's where the power is. Okay, that's the first power they needed. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the power of God is only in the true gospel and no other gospel. No other false gospel, only in the true gospel. And what is the true gospel? You know, yesterday we were driving to a birthday party and we were kind of testing each other about this, my kids. You know what the true gospel is, right, Samantha? No, never mind. (laughs) She was like, don't make me talk right now. Isaiah? No, okay, then. (laughs) The true gospel, they know what it is. It is the good news, right, that Jesus saves sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. Full stop. Amen? Amen. That's it. Just in one sentence. It is the good news Jesus saves sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. Full stop. There's nothing else. That is the gospel. Now, of course, there's a lot more attached to that, right? But that is the heart of the gospel. And in that message, and that message alone is where the power lies, you got to be convinced of that. you got to have that alive inside of you. And everyone who hears this gospel and repents and puts their faith in Christ will be saved. They will have eternal life. Their sins will be forgiven. They will know the living God and be in this symbiotic relationship with him. And not only that, but this gospel and this gospel alone will restore entire communities, cities, and nations back to God. It will transform the world. And in fact, this gospel is the only thing that has brought true human flourishing on earth for the last 2,000 years. It is in this message. So what this means is this year, if you're going to be a true witness for Christ, you've got to be clear about this. You've got to be clear about the gospel of the kingdom. So are you clear? If somebody were to come to you and say, hey, what's the gospel? How come Christians talk about that all the time? Do you have an answer? Okay, is it so clear in your heart and mind that you are convinced of it? that this is my only hope in life? Or are you still looking for other things? Yeah, the gospel, but I also need to make six figures, maybe seven figures, right? I gotta get married. I gotta have this and that. I gotta buy a house. I mean, is it the gospel plus and? Now, all those things are fine. God will give you those things. But if you're gonna be a witness, it is gospel full stop. That is my only hope. It is Christ, him crucified and raised back to life. And so are you convinced that this is your only hope? And not only that, but also your only power. Amen? Your power. Are you convinced of his truth claims? That's where the power is, is that you literally believe that this happened. Do you believe, are you convinced that Jesus really died? He was a historical person who actually died on a Roman cross. It was a historical event. And then he actually rose back to life. That is a historical event. It says in verse three, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. I like how Luke used intentionally the word proofs. See, it's not true that Christians just have blind faith and you believe in the spaghetti God up in the sky, right? The spaghetti monster in the sky, whatever people call it. But that's not true. But there are proofs and evidences for our faith. Did you know that of all the world religions, only Christianity is based completely on a historical event? Okay, Paul made this clear. If this thing, this historical event didn't happen, Christianity is false and we are all pitied to be, to be pitied above all men and women. 
In other words, if Jesus didn't actually die and actually rise bodily from the grave, then there is no Christianity. Christianity is the only religion based on a historical event. So this means, unlike other religions that are based on visions, dreams, inner experiences, enlightenment of their founders, Christianity rises and falls completely on a historical event that can be examined. You can examine it. You can test it. Did this actually happen? Did people talk about it? Are there evidences in history that this actually happened? You can actually search it out. And this is exactly what Jesus did when he came to his disciples and showed them proofs of his suffering and resurrection. This is what Jesus was doing. He's like, this is actually historical. Look at me, I'm here. Touch my hands. Look at the proofs. You saw me die. I actually died. I was buried. Here I am now. And the early Christians became so convinced of these proofs that they were willing to not only proclaim it to everyone, they laid down their lives for it. Right? All the apostles, without exception, died for their faith. Horrible deaths. Horrible deaths. And yet they, they refused to reject it. They're like, I, I can't deny what is true. I mean, who dies for a lie? Nobody would die for a lie. But for a truth, you'll lay down your life if it's important enough. And so this is the first power we must have. You gotta be convinced of it, brothers and sisters. You gotta know that the gospel is true. Even more than training, and we're gonna have training this year on evangelism. But if you have this simple conviction in the gospel alone, it will transform you into a powerful witness. You know, I saw this so many times as a college pastor, but so many times, you know, we're having all these trainings, right? And we're trying to like become like these evangelists on the campus and stuff. And then this brand new person who had this like shady past, a colorful past, gets saved gloriously and now they're on fire. And then you know what happens? They surpass everybody <laughs> in terms of evangelism. They're out there every day witnessing. They're bringing people to church like every week. They're seeing tons of salvations happen. It's like, what in the world? You're a baby Christian. You've only been saved for like a month. Well, how is that possible? Well, again, I'm not saying training is not important. It's important. We need training. But it's that conviction. Amen? For them, it's fresh. Jesus is real. He's alive. I've seen him. He changed me. You know, earlier I mentioned that, uh, that testimony of the ex-gang member, Johnny Chang, but he's like a minister now traveling the world, still tatted up, right? He can't erase those, but he is a powerful evangelist. Why? Because it's so real to him. Jesus saved me. I was a gangbanger about to die. I was in prison and he gloriously saved me. I'm sharing the gospel with you. And I don't know if you have much training. He probably did now, but it is that conviction that produced the mighty witness and so, brothers and sisters, if you've lost that conviction, I want to encourage you, dig it up. Dig it up, right? Go back to your first convictions. Go back to your first passions. Think about when you first came to faith in Christ. Okay, think about what God did for you when you first came and heard who he is. Again, I mentioned that powerful testimony of the ex-game member, but I've heard so many recently. You know, I've been kind of struggling. I don't know. I've been kind of tired and kind of needing some encouragement in my life. And so I've been listening to a lot of testimonies lately. And I've been hearing a lot of ex-Muslims as well. But there's been some powerful testimonies of Muslims, even Palestinians right now, coming to faith in Christ. But as I hear them articulating their conversion testimony, it gives me fresh conviction. You're right. That's the power of the gospel. I need that again. In fact, in the book of Acts, Paul repeatedly, more than once, I think three times, repeats his own testimony every chance he got. 
You hear Paul's testimony, I believe three times in this entire book. But we need to do that from time to time. We need to go back and remind ourselves of our testimony. We need to hear afresh again the gospel in the word of God. Okay, clear out the clutter. In the same way you would go to your closet and clear out the clutter. You gotta clear out the clutter in your heart. And that'll bring a fresh conviction. So that's the first power you need to be an effective witness. The second power, and we're not gonna really touch on this today, but the second power is the baptism in the spirit. The baptism in the spirit. Again, one is not enough, you need both. And so Jesus, he promised that they would be baptized only a few days from now. So he spent 40 days with them, teaching about the gospel, showing them many proofs about the gospel of the kingdom, and then 10 days after that, he said, you're gonna get baptized by the Spirit. So this promise was basically Jesus making good on what he said in John 16. He said, I'm gonna leave soon. And until I leave, the helper can't come. So he's making good on that promise. This is also the fulfillment of what John the Baptist prophesied in Luke 3.16. He said way back in Luke's gospel, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So Jesus is making good on that. But he's saying you need this power. And listen to what Jesus promised once the Spirit came and baptized them. Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. Okay, now you're going to be my powerful witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So wonderful. Okay, this is how Jesus sends us out. Okay, you're going to get power. You already have the power of the gospel, but you're going to receive this other power from on high, and then you're going to be my witnesses. And all these areas, geographies he mentions, if you look on a map, they go out in concentric circles. It starts in Jerusalem, the very city Jesus died. How do you launch a movement in the city where you were publicly killed? Well, something must have happened. He came back to life. But in the very city he was publicly killed, it's going to start there, and then it's going to expand out. Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And we know this is true because here we are. We're in the ends of the earth. Riverside is definitely the ends of the earth. It feels like it. <laughs> We're here. Amen. And this, in fact, Acts 1-8 is like the table of contents for the book of Acts. As you go through the book of Acts, you literally see that happen. It starts in Jerusalem. It goes to Judea, Samaria, and then all the way out to Rome and beyond. And so it's kind of like the table of contents. So this is so important. He said, don't leave. Don't even try to be my witnesses until first you are convinced of the gospel, the proofs of the gospel, and then you get baptized by the Spirit. One Bible commentator said, without the coming of the Spirit, there would be no prophecy, no preaching, no mission, no conversions, no worldwide Christian movement. Amen? You have nothing. You have nothing. You need the baptism of the Spirit. And we'll talk more about that in chapter two, so I'm not gonna say anything today. So this is the other power that the church desperately needs if we're gonna be powerful witnesses. Listen to Ian Bounds. He was a man who used to pray hours before the sun rose every day until he died. But he said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better or new organizations or more novel methods, but men and women whom the Holy Ghost can use, men and women of prayer, men and women mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men and women. He does not come on machinery, but on people. He does not anoint plans, but people, people of prayer. Amen? This is what you need. 
This is why we are witnesses and this is why we're not witnesses. You either have the conviction of the gospel and the baptism of the spirit or you don't. Maybe you have some pamphlets and some training, but that's not enough. You need these powers. So again, Jesus doesn't send us out like Link in just our underwear with a stick. He has equipped us, amen? And then finally, number four, so he chose us, he gave us convincing proofs of the gospel, he promised the baptism of the spirit, and then number four, Jesus motivated them for the mission. He motivated them for the mission. And this one, you see it through his ascension. But in in, uh, Acts 1, six through seven, so now the 40 days are over and now they're at the Mount of Olives and Jesus is about to leave. And here's the conversation they have. So when they had come together, so now here they are, they're about to say bye to Jesus. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. So unfortunately, even after spending 40 days with the risen Christ, the disciples still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. Because after those 40 days, the disciples asked Jesus in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, every part of that question is wrong. John Calvin pointed this out. But he said their question had as many errors as words. <laughs> so every word in that question is wrong. So for example, the word restore shows that they were looking ahead to a political, a geographical kingdom of Israel, kingdom of God. Okay, that was wrong. When they said Israel, they were expecting a national kingdom. That was wrong. When they said at this time, they were expecting it to happen right now. That was wrong too. So everything about it was wrong. So after Jesus' teaching for 40 days, they still didn't know. Okay, everything was wrong. But not only that, but now Jesus said, okay. He just kind of set that aside saying, I'm not going to answer that. Even the father, okay, told me that I don't know. Nobody's going to know except for the father. And then he said, he's going to lift up to heaven. This is in, in uh, verse 9 through 11. And then Jesus, after saying these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here's their second error. And I really like John Stott. He's the one who really clarified this, unpacked it for me. But he said at the very end of this passage, they are still in two errors. The first one was they were looking for an earthly kingdom. Every part of that question was wrong. But then now after Jesus started ascending to heaven, they had something else wrong. Now they're just gazing at heaven. (laughs) So in one regard, they were too earthly. And now after Jesus ascended, now they're too heavenly. And both are wrong. And a lot of Christians get stuck in and either error. Okay, you either get too consumed with programs and money and things that God is trying to do, even you know, good things, but it's all earthly things, or you're just like, oh, it's just me and Jesus. And I'm just gazing at him all day long. And yet, what did the angel say? The two angels said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also come back in the same way. Right, eventually. They didn't say when, but eventually he's gonna come back the same way you saw him go up. But until then, the strong implication is get to work. Right? Get on to your mission. So Jesus, through his ascension, it was actually very important. Okay, this is the final point. We're gonna close with this. 
But he was encouraging them. He was motivating them to the mission. See, Jesus had to ascend. You know, I never really thought about his ascension, but it is so critical. Because prior to his ascension, what was Jesus doing? He would disappear and pop into view, right? They're all eating dinner in a room, and then Jesus would appear in the middle of the room. I mean, he kept like just disappearing and popping into view, and he kept doing that. And if they didn't see him physically ascend up to heaven once and for all, they would just keep looking for him. Oh, when's he going to pop in again, right? I mean, for the rest of their lives, they could be just like looking for Jesus and not be witnesses for Jesus. And so they would have been too earthly minded going, oh, when's he going to pop in and then he's going to set up his kingdom? Or they're going to be looking for the spiritual kind of connection with Jesus. Oh, I want to see Jesus again and, and just kind of have this heavenly, you know, communion with him. And yet because he ascended physically before them and then he disappeared once and for all, they knew, oh, he's gone. He's not going to pop back in again suddenly. And by the way, you know, historical records show that there were a lot of witnesses of his resurrection and appearance shortly after his death. And then right after that, nothing. There's no more historical record of Jesus ever appearing again. Even in secular records, nothing. The Jews, the Romans, nobody talked about seeing Jesus again. He truly vanished. So he did ascend up to heaven. And once the disciples understood that, they were motivated to get onto the mission. See, it was neither be too earthly minded or too heavenly minded. No, we know Jesus is there. We know he's gonna be with us by the spirit. He promised. So now we're gonna get to work, amen? And so in the same way, if we're gonna be witnesses this year, yes, we need to know him. Yes, gaze at his face. But don't be too heavenly minded. Okay, don't just stare waiting for him to come back suddenly one day. Nor be too earthly minded, thinking about programs and you know, like events and money but it's this tension of both. And so Jesus knew how to prepare them to become witnesses. And so brothers and sisters, this is the truth. This is how God is going to turn our church as well into powerful witnesses for him. And God's gonna do it. It's nothing that we need to do on our own. Amen? And so let's just come before the Lord on our first Sunday. We're gonna actually take communion. But Jesus knows how to transform his followers into powerful witnesses for him. He knows. You know, as we come before God, just with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I just wanted to briefly just mention one more encouragement. But if you find yourself just bogged down with so many issues right now, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I don't even have time for this, Roy. To be his witness? No way. I have way too many other things going on in my life. Too many problems to try to fix. I just want to encourage you. You know, I, I just talked to a brother this past week, and I shared this testimony about my, my own biological brother. But I've seen this firsthand. Someone who is drowning in problems. Problems that might be even beyond yours. And I've mentioned this before, and I think my brother would be okay for me to share this, but, but he reached a point in his life where he actually was about to end everything. He was, he was even debating whether to take his life. And in the midst of that, you know what completely transformed him? And now he is a devout, committed Christian. He loves the Lord. He takes his family to church every Sunday. He serves God, and God has blessed his life. But do you know what transformed him? It was him going on mission. 
But a friend during that time, during the darkest time of his life, a friend invited him to go on mission with him to Mexico and they went to an orphanage. And he didn't want to go, but something inside, it was God, just prompted him, just go, just go. So he went. And while he was in this orphanage, I remember him sharing this to me. But he said, when I looked at those orphans who were so joyful because they knew the Lord, and I was so not joyful, but something inside of me changed, right? He said something, something broke and it changed. And in that orphanage in Mexico, that's when everything began to reverse. He met the Lord. And it happened while he was on mission, while he was being a witness, quote unquote, right? That's when all his own problems began to change. Is when he began to put God's purpose first and his mission first. And then shortly after that, he came back. He really committed himself to God. He got baptized and then... And then the rest is history. So I just want to encourage you guys. Maybe you're just checking out, going, oh, this isn't for me. It is for you. Okay, especially if you're struggling with problems and you're drowning in your issues. Why don't you try something different for once? Why don't you try putting God's purposes ahead of your own? Right? Why keep doing the same thing, expecting different results? Why don't you try something different for once? and put God's plans ahead of your own and see what God will do. God will completely change you. He will take care of you as you go about his plans. So Lord God, we thank you so much. We give you all the glory, Lord, and thank you for reminding me of that testimony. Almost didn't share it. Thank you, Father God. You are an awesome God. So we come before you, Lord, right now. Lord, we want to be witnesses for you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. Let's just come before him. Thank you, Father God.